This episode deals with issues concerning suicide and depression. If you require support, please see the links provided in the show notes. Boys and girls, mums and dads, and welcome to I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist podcast. Hello, Brian. How are you? Oh, I was waiting for you to ignore ignore me like I ignore you sometimes, but hey, how you going? Exciting, exciting one today. We're doing one of those crossovers that makes us feel really, really cool. Now, are you corporate excited, as in I'm excited at everything that ever goes on, or are you genuinely excited about I'm this? I'm genuinely excited. You, you know that. I don't work for a corporate... So Yeah, I know. I've told you before, if I had a dollar for every time people at work say I'm excited, oh, lunch is coming, I'm excited. I've just arrived at work, I'm excited. Yeah, it kills me. But I am, I am moderately titillated that we have two wonderful folks from the Cheers to Leaving podcast. So we've got Molly and we've got Rachel. And without any further ado, hello, ladies, and welcome to I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Hey. We're Hi. so glad to be here. This is our first crossover episode with another podcast. Well, mine. Rachel's done one. Yeah, hell yeah. Oh, how good is that? <laughs> this is exciting. We'll, we'll be gentle. Well, do you know what excited me about this? What excited me about this podcast is we've got these two Australian males doing a evangelical deconstruction podcast, and then we found you guys, two American females, doing an evangelical deconstruction podcast and I just thought synergy let's get these people on let's let's compare let's show scars let's do the whole bit oh it's going to be great we're going to be showing all the scars they're coming out it'll be interesting like when whenever we we tap into people's stories and start to ask them about you know their experiences it, it's sometimes really different um, even though it might be evangelical, Pentecostals, sometimes it can be really similar, but the cultural context is always a factor. And was it you, Molly, that grew up in Mexico? Yes, that was yes. me. Yeah. So that, that'll that be even different. It'll bring a different spin. So um, I recently, I think yesterday, I listened to your most recent ep around Halloween, getting ready for Halloween season. We've definitely going to tap into some of those really interesting traditions and basically the bullshit that we all grew up with uh, around Pentecostalism. Now, you guys, would you guys call yourself Pentecostals or was it sort of more charismatic? What, where do you, what was the label that you both wore? So we're not Pentecostal. We were non-denominational evangelicals, but that kind of falls under the umbrella of Southern Baptists. So Southern, like the Baptists kind of have a pretty big claim to the non-denominational evangelicals. Anyone who like came, who like got into a non-denominational evangelical church have their roots in the Baptist church and the Baptist Southern Baptist convention. Uh, So, so essentially, essentially not saved. Yeah. Well, (laughs) according to you guys, well, according to us, you're not saved and (laughs) us, according to you, we're not saved either. So (laughs) we're all going to hell. Yeah. I think according to us all, we're all not saved now, but when, when you were there, were you guys like healing, tongue talking, or no. you guys were like, I oh, know this is the devil. No, hold on. Rachel's nodding. Rachel's nodding. No, we did. We did speaking in tongues and stuff. You did? Okay. My parents had to sign a paper that they were not allowed to speak in tongues or teach people how to speak in tongues. This is when we were with the Southern Baptist Mission Board. Yeah. So mine wouldn't fall under Southern Baptist. Mine was yeah. just like non-denominational, do whatever the fuck you want. Can we cuss on this podcast? I'm so uh, sorry. So much. <laughs> yes. So much. Okay. <laughs> I was like, I just dropped an F-bomb. Yeah. Mine was like, we had uh, this one like staple in our church. Her name was Virginia and it was a house church, but she'd always be in the back just like screaming yes and like like doubling over every time. And like, we definitely had some people falling on the floor, like doing like convulsions and stuff. So it's kind of a free for all. Oh, good. So you had the Holy Spirit. <laughs> That's nice. We have the Holy Spirit for sure. Yeah, good. <laughs> yeah, no. Spiritual warfare was a big no-no for us. We didn't we didn't get involved oh, with all we that. All so that so where's the trauma in your experience, then, Molly? If you're not speaking in tongues, <laughs> yeah. there's no spiritual get warfare. Out. You're not casting demons out of each other. Why do you even have a goddamn podcast? <laughs> 
You're almost I'm- like Catholic. <laughs> God. <laughs> it's so funny because like my my one of my parents actually uh, reconverted back to Catholicism after leaving um, the Southern Baptist Church. He, my dad went and um, became an ordained Franciscan chaplain. <laughs> so yeah, basically Catholic. Um, where does my trauma come from? Um, I think it was like the mission board we were involved with, the, the people that they had leading our youth ministries and all of the camps and all of that BS, but also like there was like a fair amount of religious trauma in just my upbringing alone. I was homeschooled, so like very isolated. We were house church people, very isolated. So a lot of really funky, weird things would happen, and there was no accountability, even less than you would get in an organized church. Well, I reckon we're gonna we're gonna dig into these stories a bit more. So Molly, why don't you tell us your backstory? You've already started, so let's let's dive into it and just just give us the I don't know the cliff notes. Okay, so uh, Cliff Notes. This is tough because my life is very complicated. Um, (laughs) My parents were um, like the 80s Jesus freaks, like crunchy granola Jesus freaks. And um, they got involved with the Southern Baptists. They got called into ministry and decided they were going to be missionaries. So when I was like seven years old, we moved to Latin America. And we were with the Southern Baptist Mission Board as missionaries. We were homeschooled and... I had indoctrination as early as 8.30 in the morning, Monday through Friday. We had family worship for 45 minutes with my dad where he indoctrinated us in his beliefs and we would read the Bible together and go through Bible study together. And then on Wednesday nights, we had our church group. And then on Saturday, all day Saturday was church. It was intense. Religion really kind of penetrated every essence of my being. The curriculum, the school curriculum we did was Christian. The only people we hung around were Christians. Even the international school that I would take extracurriculars at was deeply, deeply Christian. And it was all like people from our mission board. Any activities we did outside, I got lucky because I I got to go take like ballet class in like a secular (laughs) secular school. (laughs) But um, my parents were very like micromanaging around what we did. Like everyone we moved around had to be like in the church. So that was kind of my background in it. It was just, it was all encompassing of my whole entire life. So at what age did did this, was this from birth that you yes. were indoctrinated into this? Okay. Yes. On my whole, all my siblings. Yeah. I think I'm going to have to give you your trauma badge back because that <laughs> sounds pretty intense. It was a lot. It was um, from morning until night. There was no safe space. There was no safe, uh, there was no space for exploration. We we were allowed to explore to a, to an extent that my parents were comfortable with, you know, that's where it ended. Like there was no exploration outside of what they deemed was okay for us. They pretty much micromanaged everything down to the music we listened to and the movies we watched, the books we read, the friends we had and, you know, everything. That's 45 minutes, 45 minutes of dedication and worship and prayer every morning. Yeah, but with no tongues. So it wasn't real worship. No, No, it wasn't real worship because we weren't speaking in tongues. Because you have to go, hallelujah, see, bakalah, shanda, shanda. That's uh, that's what we call worship when we grew up. Yeah, that's it. Absolutely. Were you even talking to God? I mean, that's the question you've got to ask. We did have like, there was definitely times, and this was like once I was in high school and we we started going to a church, we came back to the US and I was going to an actually established church. It was also non-denominational evangelical. And um, there was some tongue speaking in the youth service, which was interesting to me. And I kind of got pulled into it and I was like, Ooh, this is interesting. And, I, and, and then I realized like, this is gibberish. This is actual gibberish. There was one night we all went to um, a lock-in, which is like a co-ed sleepover where you just don't sleep. And it was at the Christian Youth Center um, in our town. And there were like, at one point I had like three or four women, like just like kind of all come up to me and lay their hands on me, their heavy, hot, sweaty hands. And they just start like speaking in tongues and uh, and spitting on me and crying. And I'm like, "I I don't know what's happening. I, don't, I did not consent. Why are you touching me? And what is this language? I'm, I'm multilingual. I don't recognize this language. <laughs> now, you, you did say when you came back to the States. So you were in Mexico. But when did you go there? Like at, at what age? And how long were you there? Um, so I was there f- on and off between the ages of like seven and 18. So we would come back to the US for like six to nine month long furloughs. But I was there from first grade until I graduated high school. I was going to ask you about that, that term there, furlough, because that's the missionary word that they use when they come back. They're on furlough. 
They're on furlough. We're on stateside assignment. That was what we used, stateside assignment. So we're going back to the states because we have to go. My dad had to go preach in all the tiny dying Southern Baptist churches to raise support. God, that sounds like absolute hell. hell. It was hell. <laughs> Seven to eighteen. So that's. Did you? Is that where you learned to speak Spanish, or was that something mm-hmm. you grew up with as well? Well, we all had to learn. So we went to language school in Costa Rica for 14 months um, right before we went to Mexico. So we all learned to speak Spanish. I was still really young, so I didn't really pick up much. The rest of it, I kind of just learned because we were in, you know, all the people we were around were Mexican. So it was like our church and our community was all Spanish speaking. So you're around it enough, you pick it up. But yeah, I was at one point very fluent. I, I wouldn't say I am now. I've lost a lot of vocab. So it sounds pretty full on, like in terms of what you were expected to to do as a kid, like you had to be within that bubble. Did you, were you curious at that time of going, um, not everyone's like me, I'm, I'm really within this bubble, or were you thinking, hey, this is totally normal? Um, it was a little bit of both. So I'm queer, and uh, there was definitely like shadows of that when I was young, and I kind of knew that it was taboo and I wasn't supposed to... Um, act on it or talk about it because like when you're taught about sexuality in a really conservative household it's very tied to men and I kind of had this I had a disconnect with it where I was like this doesn't really make sense um, that my sexuality is tied to a man because my sexuality is my own and I always kind of had that innate understanding of it and always was a little weirded out by things that the community around us would do like purity ceremonies and there was just a a lot of weird things that I was not super on board with I remember when I was like 16 sitting in church and my dad is talking and I'm writing in my journal he is such a hypocrite I wish I could tell him how I don't agree with anything he's saying and I don't even agree with this gospel and like like I started understanding that the philosophies I had been like brought up by like was not something I held to be true and in, in my it didn't feel true in my own body and to me so I it, there was definitely a disconnect I was heavily bullied by a lot of the girls on our mission board so I also knew I didn't quite fit in um, I was a really intense tomboy and uh, also didn't fit in because of that so there, there was a lot of like oh women are supposed to dress this way and act this way and there was a lot of that s- stuff that was kind of put on me and I was like uh no I'm not going to follow with that. That's not who I am. And and so there was whispers and shadows of who I was going to become as an adult, even as a kid. And, but there was a time where I really did try to make it work for me. I really did try to conform and try to believe in this. And But it was, it was tough. I remember a very distinct moment. I was like maybe eight or nine sitting on my parents' bed very late at night. They're trying to sleep. And I'm just asking my dad existential questions about, and how you have no proof. How do you know where you go when you die. You have no proof. How do you know that when Jesus died on the cross, he really forgave all your sins? Like, how do you know that? Like, do you have proof for that? And I'm asking him these questions and he's trying to explain his doctrine to me. And I'm just like, see, this doesn't make sense, dad. Like, can you see that this doesn't make sense? I'm just this tiny little kid kind of trying to pull him out of his own way of thinking and and to see the world in a much broader way. And that's kind of funny looking back on it now. It's like, oh, Huh. Interesting. Molly, how how old were you when you were having those conversations with your dad? I was like eight, seven or eight when I when I first started having doubts and conversations like that. And I struggled so much up until I was about 15 of just, do I even believe this? I think this is total BS. Do I even believe it? And then when I was 15, I experienced Jesus camp and uh, all of the emotional highs that come with that. That's its own version of trauma. We have a whole episode all about that. It's called, it's about to get culty on our podcast um, where I talk about Jesus camp and all of the brainwashing that happens there. And I came back from that saved. I got baptized, um, was on fire for Christ for about four months and then went right back into my depression and into my own like identity crises of, I don't really know how to exist in this household because I, I don't believe in the same stuff. See, if you had have come up with those questions at seven or eight years old in Pentecostalism, you would have got a demon cast out of you. Like 100%, that's where things like exorcisms and, and things like that would happen because surely Satan had something to do with it if uh, if you were asking those questions back then. Like totally. Like that, I reckon that's the angle that would have been taken in Pentecostalism. 
but you were able to have those curious conversations but still tried to obviously being pushed into a box. So you're saying that, you know, that went on for seven, eight years. What's happening for you in those seven or eight years? Like how do you how do you process this? How, what's it do? How does it affect you as a person? I was so depressed. I had so much depression. I struggled with mood swings. Um, I was actually diagnosed as um, having bipolar disorder a few years ago. And then after I started working on my trauma, I realized it was just trauma. <laughs> I'm actually quite a stable individual once you start pulling the trauma out. But I had a, an intense amount of mood swings, depression. I um, self-harmed a little bit. You know, I was a closeted. I was I was really just like a, a closeted atheist in a sense. <laughs> like, I don't believe in this. Also closeted queer and uh, living in a really strict Christian household. It was really hard. I had a lot of anger. I have journals and journals and journals of angry poetry. I was so angry at God and so angry at my parents and angry at my family, angry at the people who were over me in our mission board who, who would hold their authority over me and then abuse it. Like I had so much anger and it, it just, it came out in the worst ways that it could. I struggled with my relationship with my siblings, with my parents. I struggled to have friendships and uh, it was not fun. And I started having like really bad, like psychotic breakdowns right after um, it, like during college, like I left my parents' home. I went to college. They were still in Mexico and I really struggled to thrive in college. I was, it was extremely depressed and, and going through this and just feeling very alone and uh, started going to therapy. But of course, the, it was a Christian college. The counselor or therapist was a Christian. And so I couldn't really bring up these topics. And I was I had pushed them so far down. It was so taboo to even bring up that maybe I don't believe in God and maybe I don't believe in this religion that we're holding so strong to like I'd push that so far down that that wasn't even coming up for me in therapy it was just like I am so depressed and I don't want to be alive and for years even after I left the church I never even considered that the shit I went through growing up was actually trauma and might actually be what was causing all of my mental health issues yeah I'm really sorry Molly I'm, I'm listening to your story and and it's very I don't mean this to uh, diminish what you're going through. Uh, just saying it from where we're coming from. We see this all the time, and we hear this all the time because of the the nature of the podcast. And I, I'm really sorry that that happened. It's just terrible. It's okay. I think that um, with you know without that, I don't think I'd be at the point of like self realization and self understanding um, if I didn't go through what I went through. I think that it kind of set me up for for this really incredible life that I'm able to live in now. But it took a lot to get there. And having the podcast, being um, invited to co-host Choose Leaving helped me really kind of start working through my trauma that I was really afraid to face. I remember when Rachel asked me to join, I was like, let me think about it. And I talked to my sister. And I'm like, I just feel like if I join, I'm just going to be unpacking a lot of stuff I'm not ready to unpack. And she's like, well, maybe that's that's a good reason to to do it. And sure enough. You're welcome. Yeah, thanks, babe. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, it's therapy. <laughs> so, so Molly, we're, we're going to put a pin in you for a moment, if that's okay. And we're yeah. going to jump down to, not in a voodoo way, we're going to jump down to Rachel and let's hear all about you, Rachel, and then, and then we'll combine these stories and keep going with that. Cool. Okay. Well, my pastor recruited my mother when I was one years old in a doctor's office to come to his house church. <laughs> my mom was kind of desperate. She was like um, late 30s, just had a kid, um, wasn't with my father and just kind of was looking for something, you know, she was at that point in her life where she was like, there's got to be more to life. She found Jesus. So um, that's how that started. I've literally been in a house church. I probably was in this house church for like 20 something years, same one. Um, so the mega church life was never, you know, something that I was accustomed to. So it was always like small house church stuff. Hey, can I stop you there for a minute just quickly and say that was something that stood out to me when I was listening to your stories on your podcast, that you weren't mega church. You were actually, and you weren't even really normal church. You were just no. house church, <laughs> which, which is unusual. 
Yeah, and it's very unregulated, too, if you think about it. Like, I don't think anything super sketchy went on in our house church, but if you think about it, it could have, you know, because it's just a man, and he was ordained. He had gone, you know, he had gone to school and everything like that, but, like, again, there was no, like, board. There was no anything. It was just, like, following this one guy and what he was saying in his house and all of that, and Yeah. So Molly and I both have that in common. So sometimes when we talk to people about like mega churches or, you know, their background in big churches, we're kind of like trying to learn along with them because like most of our experience is just very like small and intense and just um, kind of out of the ordinary, I guess. It's a tiny cult. (laughs) Tiny cult. It's sort of, it's, it's definitely not the Australian experience. I mean, the ex- Australian experience, that's sort of, that's a complementary part of your spirituality. So you would go to church on a Sunday, but then you would have a, we generally call them house, home groups here rather than house churches, yes. but that's complementary. Like that is something you're expected to go to once or twice a week to just make sure your indoctrination and your ability to be fed bullshit is something that can be really fit into your, to your journey. So what what is house church? Is it just a bunch of, like a small bunch of people that get together and do weird shit every week and live out of each other's pockets? Tell us, what what's house church? Yeah, I mean, I feel like you nailed Nailed it in right there. Um, It is a bunch of people getting together, doing weird shit. Uh, Lots of acoustic guitars. We don't really have Sunday school. We tried for a bit to have Sunday school. And as we grew a bit, we actually did move to a building for like a hot minute. Um, And then it went small again. So the the building was only for a couple of years. And that was kind of strange. This one gal would try to like volunteer to like take the kids to a different room for Sunday school. But a lot of house churches kind of just like a big get together in someone's house where there's lots of like singing and worship, um, lots of prayer. Um, it's unregulated. So like, there's no like timing on sermons or timing on like worship. Um, and then also my house church started doing this thing where they would get together with other house churches in the area and meet in a building. And then, um, that kind of got wild because like we had all these like leaders of these house churches and it was all spirit led. So like you could be there for fucking hours. And it was like, Molly and I talk about this and it's like, bitch, I got to eat. You know, I, I like, they would be like, oh, let's just keep it going. Let's keep the prayer circle going. Like, let's just see how the Lord leads and all this stuff. And you're like, I'm ready to go. So it's just kind of like weird things like that. Like I said, like everything was just sort of like, you know, someone would be like, this is what Jesus wants. And everyone would be like, oh, okay. Yeah. It's what Jesus wants. It's spirit led. That was pretty much it. We'd have people volunteer for the worship team. Mostly it was just a bunch of guys and acoustic guitars. Um, and then on a little projector they would have like in the kitchen and then they would like put it up on the living room wall. So people could like follow along the lyrics and yeah, lots of hands on prayer. Yeah. That that's what I say, you know, house church would be. It's kind of weird. I know this may sound like a really random question, but was underneath it all, were they still super right-wing politically or were they more leftist leaning? Because it sounds, you know, Kumbaya, acoustic guitars, doesn't sound like a real sort of Trump voting electorate. You would be surprised. Everyone in my house church now that conservative as fuck, all so of them fucking love Trump. They love him. Molly's family is different. They're super liberal. My, my which father is like was like a prophet ahead of his time, but super, super, super Trumpers. Like, yeah, mega Trump. It does seem very hippie. <laughs> You'd think it would be about helping the poor, but no, they, they don't like welfare and they don't like anything that has to do with, I mean, they would live it out. Like he would definitely invite people into his home. The pastor would, and like definitely try to like help people get back on their feet. So he definitely lived it out. But as far as voting goes, no. Rachel, were there like more progressive people in your house church? Because I feel like, like my parents were like the progressive, like they were like the progressive prophets in a sense. And like, they've always kind of been the most progressive people in their, in their gatherings and their church and whatever. Like, did, did you feel like there was like always like that one family that was just slightly more progressive than everyone else? Maybe, but if they were, they weren't vocal about it because I can think about everyone that was like a staple in the house church. And I I really don't think, I mean, it was very like also very pro-life, which is really pro-birth in my opinion. Um, 
So like anything that like the conservative Christians were voting for, they were like, this is this is what God would want. And it was always just very like, we have to vote Republican. I mean, my parents did it. They pushed me to do it as soon as I turned 18. You know, it was just all like very, this is what we will do. So that was kind of like culty in a way as well, because that was like expected. It's it's really interesting. And this is the, the cultural stuff that I was referring to a while back is in Australia, that would be a very different context. Generally, people who split off and, you know, form their own little home groups, I mean, generally speaking, would be a little bit more leftist leaning, more liberal, and and generally that that right-wing agenda, a right-wing agenda is pushed through the pulpit at church. So it's a slightly different context. That you may be aware that our Prime Minister until recently was Pentecostal in Australia. So it was a definitely a really weird experience for those few years that he was prime minister but he was backed by all the mega churches there was people getting rallying votes for him essentially and he was brought to power essentially by the mega churches and the evangelicals and pentecostals in australia who saw this conservative agenda and thought this is for jesus you know so they they much like the Trump experience, but certainly nowhere near as extreme. Australia, yeah, a bit that's more like balanced. our entire culture here. I feel like that's how the Republican Party operates. I feel like it's all a bunch of religion-backed bullshit. Where it's like, oh, we need to make our country go back to its roots and be Christian again, and have these family values and all of that. And I feel like that's what motivates a lot of our Republican parties is just religion. Yeah, and, and that's where it's really different here. It was really a blip in the radar for us. It was something that has never really happened before to, to this extreme, and Australians ultimately called bullshit on it. Yeah, it was a failed religious coup, wasn't it? They tried. They tried to sort of imitate what was happening in the US, but it, it didn't work, and we've now got a, a more leftist government back in, and we're all breathing. <sighs> <laughs> And, and yeah, it, yeah, it's definitely a, a different flavour. And it it was an interesting time, though, because it was the first time that I recall in Australian politics that it was divided along religious lines. But as I said, we call bullshit. It's the great thing about living in a country that was founded for convicts, not founded for Christ. So we have a, yeah. a definitely not uh, no religious past. I, I think that you would really you wouldn't consider Australia religious um, in any way. We don't have religion taught in school or anything like that. So very, very different context. So, yeah, everything you hear, you hear the co-opting of the, the Christian vote very often in the States. So it's, it's a very different space. Yeah. House church sounds weird in short. <laughs> yeah, and, and Rachel, coming back to what you were saying about you know, these people sort of being anti-hierarchical and, you know, let's just see what the spirit, how the spirit leads and where it takes us and very sort of hippy trippy. That's why I was asking, uh, were they sort of leftist leaning? Because I think that's what Brian was saying. That's what happens here. People that get the jack of church and tend to be more anti-hierarchical, et cetera, tend to sort of float left, don't they, Brian? And and that's what happens. The house churches here, and they don't really last very long before they're all sort of going back to to mainline churches. But still, yeah, it's very different. Yeah, it is, and it, it's interesting too. But I, I think with the culture here, like if you think about how like Trumpism or whatever, they definitely create this sort of bubble that they live in. And I feel like that's what house church does as well as homeschooling, because I was both as well. You don't give your kids or anyone an option to think otherwise. So, I mean, I obviously that could apply to being a liberal point of view, but I, I think when, at least here, when they do house churches is they want to teach and believe what they want to believe. And so they'll still incorporate Jesus and, you know, all the teachings of it, but it's still very, it's still going to be a very harsh representation of it as far as, you know, all of the rules and all of these things, but they're also going to make sure that you're voting Republican. They're also going to make sure that you're you don't have exposure to any sort of like public school stuff. You don't have exposure to an evolution. I remember that being like a huge like no no, and things like that. To where, you know, when Molly and I did eventually leave, we just felt so undereducated and so like lost in the real world as far as that goes. So I think that's why people do it here. It's to completely bubble us in 
into this weird indoctrinating and belief system that even flows over to politics. And so it's like really strange and fucked up. So, (laughs) so do you think that's the more common experience in the States? Because I know here we do have a, a homeschooling movement within the church, but it's tiny. It's really tiny. And it's generally those people that are super paranoid of the world. And I, I know some people that have done it in the past. Is that a common experience in the States? It feels like it. I just pulled up statistics. You guys want to know a number? I love a stat. There are 3.7 million homeschool students in the United States right now. So I'd say, yeah. The number has increased a lot since the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, just because people right. were like, I'm not sending my kid back to school. These rules are crazy. But I find that homeschooling got really big in the 70s and 80s. That's when my mom started homeschooling was in the 80s. Um, and it was all Christian. So all of the homeschool co-ops and all of the curriculums were yeah, the based curriculum in group. Christian. Yeah, they were all Christian curriculums. And so it was really this push to bring religion back into the education that because the public school system was taking religion out, um, people like my parents were like, well, we want our kids to have a wholesome upbringing. So we're going to home, we're going to take them out of school and we're going to homeschool them and provide them in this more well-rounded education that um, in our curriculum will be Christian based because it's what, this is where our values lie. What they didn't realize is while they were doing that, and trying to provide the best education for us, they were actually keeping us from good education because we didn't have access to real science. We didn't have access to even just like really good, like math programs. Like all of my siblings and I are like very, we were very behind in like math and sciences when we kind of came out. And also like our history that we were taught, we were taught like the most whitewashed religious version of history possible and so, yeah, that was it was very a very confusing time trying to step into the adult world. What was that line from Thirty Rock where the, the guy says, "Oh, I love science. I know all about science. I know Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus." Yeah, right. yeah, pretty much. I can relate. <laughs> <laughs> can relate. Yes. Yeah, it's it's just it's such a different experience. It always fascinates me. I mean, we, as I said, we have pockets of it here, but I think Australians generally get a fairly balanced view. We've got a, a whitewashed version of history, absolutely, in terms of uh, what uh, Australians did to First Nations people here, and particularly some of it was in the name of Jesus that we mm. put them in camps and generally made reserves like like you did in the states with native americans so it's it's a very um, whitewashed version that a lot of people get but we're starting to to chip away at that but even if you were a christian here you'd go to church on a sunday you might have a a home group experience during the week but you generally had a fairly secular education obviously there's christian schools there's a lot of catholic schools here but generally you got some sort of other influence you guys were completely indoctrinated, completely brainwashed, no opportunity to look outside of that, particularly when, Molly, before you described, you know, your upbringing, that it was very much within that bubble. You didn't get to socialise with anybody outside that. Rachel, was, did you have a similar experience in that way? Um, Yeah, for the most part, I'd say until I became like in 15 or 16, that, that was it. I mean, I really, my whole childhood is just socializing with my pastor's kids because he had like eight kids and I was an only child. And so I would just kind of go over there and I would, I would spend a lot of time with them. And beyond that, I didn't really have anyone else. So, oh, he was even allowed to um, kind of reprimand me like a father. So I definitely was like just in there. I was spanked with the kids and all of that stuff. So I was just kind of like in there you know, these were my friends and these were, this was really all I knew up until like, like I said, 15 or 16. And when I started branching out and, um, I did a lot of theater and things like that. And I I wanted to start doing more outside of Christian theater because Christian theater is fucking crazy. It's all martyr stories. Um, we also have a whole episode on that because it's just fucking wild. I started branching out around 16 and I I realized, I think that's when it sort of clicked with me that there was like just more, 
like there was there was better people out there. They were less judgmental and they were like way more chill. And I was like, what is this? But they were like worldly and evil or whatever, you know, like, (laughs) but I was like, these people are so chill and they're not judging me on like every single thing I say and do and wear and all this stuff. So at 16, I, I was involved in Les Miserables at one of our outdoor theaters here with a traveling Broadway cast. And it was, it's still a great memory, but like literally I was just thrown into a the whole thing of public school kids and this culture and everything. And I was like, what is this? This is crazy. So um, I would say before that, nothing. And um, by then I was like a good Christian girl. So I was like, I will not be tempted. <laughs> I was like 16 when I got out of the bubble too. Cause I was going to like a secular ballet school with like public school kids and like same thing they were way cooler way more chill way less judgmental however there was always this like undertone of I should be evangelizing them and I'm not right and am I gonna go to hell for that because like my mom would be like you should just invite them over we can start like a girls group and mm-hmm. um we actually we did at one point and I remember inviting some of my ballet friends over and being so embarrassed and being like oh my god they're going to see how I live. They're going to see like all the weird things we do. My parents are going to try to convert them and this isn't going to work and they're going to think I'm weird. <laughs> Did you have scripture verses on the wall, like framed ones? Did, no. Were they, they going to see that? No, they weren't going to see that. But like they walk into our house and like the first thing is like there's like a stack of Bibles on the coffee table. And we're all sitting in a circle and everyone's got a Bible and we're going to read this passage <laughs> and we're going to talk about it. And I'm just like no. sh- just ashamed. Like, oh, my God, my cool friends are going to think I'm such a nerd. <laughs> yeah, well, serves you right for stepping outside the bubble. See, because your parents right. were just waiting. How are we going to win the last if we don't know the last? Let's yeah. wait for our child's rebellious stage. Well, my dad Mm -hmm. used to do this. He used to like watch our neighbors and figure out which ones had kids around our age. And then he'd be like, hey, he has a daughter that's your age. You should go be friends with her. And then I'd go befriend the kid. And next thing you know, her whole family's at my house and my parents are trying to evangelize the parents. It was very uncomfortable. Yeah, Trauma, 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 because basically they're using you there as a tool to evangelize. That's just shit. Yeah, that happened a lot. So uh, one thing really, obviously your experience as, as women growing up in this, this culture, but also the, the effect that that has on you, I think is something it's unique. I mean, a lot of the control for, is from men. A lot of the rules are from men. Uh, you've got to stick to this. The purity culture in the States, I think, is, is something that is so real and affects you and obviously part of that homeschool environment, the house church environment, all those things can reinforce those accepted rules. How did those things affect you as women? It's just a lot to unpack. It is. And, and look, it's a really broad question. Super, but, but I guess maybe some of the examples of of the effects of that. I mean, it, it's it's huge. We we had an episode recently with, with a friend who was basically growing up as a, a woman in Pentecostalism and what that did to her, what, you know, how that affected her and some of those different pain points that you think of. Not not that we want to really bring you to a, a trauma place right now, but let's bring you to a trauma place. <laughs> we can handle it. We've got, we do this every week. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> our, our podcast could literally be called like purity culture trauma, like the amount of episodes that we have that cover purity culture because it, it, penetrated every no pun intended it not a good time to use the word penetrated it penetrated every part of our existence but it really was like so much of us just being women was your sexuality is tied to a man in the sky and to your father and to your future husband so like yeah a lot of promising yeah do you have to did you ever like pray for your future husband i mean yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) Well, there was Rebecca St. James who had that song, Wait For Me, you know, which was about her future husband. I was given a book called Preparing to Be His Helpmeet that was all about how to be in service to your brother and your father before, so that you can be a good wife when you're older. Yeah, lots of subservient to men stuff. Yeah, a lot of subservient. And like, this was what was hard for me, too. It's like, I was like, queer, and I didn't know it, but like, I knew it. 
you know? And so I was like very confused by why is there so much emphasis on how men see us like in this sexual way? Like, why is there so much emphasis on this and, and like so much shame around it? I, I remember like I had, um, I, I, the first time I kissed a boy was, I was like 16 and it was just a peck and it, but you know, there was so much like shaming that was done when my parents found out that I kissed this boy and my sisters, like, oh my gosh, like I was slut shamed for having a first kiss. I'm like, guys, I'm like 16. It was about damn time. Like, come on. It's about damn time. <laughs> also, I feel like there was an emphasis on like my mom was really big on this verse and I can't even think where it's from right now. It was probably fucking Paul. Um, but it was like fuck Paul. Fuck Paul. <laughs> it was like uh wives respect your husbands. And husbands love your wives, but there was like a big emphasis on like respecting the men. And then my mom would be like, oh, but men have a really hard job too. Like they just have to love you so much. And I'm like, aren't like love and respect kind of going hand in hand? Like, you know what I mean? Like, but it was this big like respect, but it was actually like submit. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask. Don't some translations use obey and Mm-hmm. submit yeah I was raised on the submit to your husband submit to your yeah. father children submit I think to my mom father. liked to use respect because it made her like feel better about it or something I don't know but yeah it's submit to your husband's and that that gets taken out of context a lot but definitely something that was taught to me even growing up even before I was of the age of thinking about marriage or boyfriends or things like that I mean it's just fucking drilled into your head to already hold men in this regard of the fact that they are somewhat better or smarter than you and that you are supposed to be the ones that are like their helpmate, you know, but they get the ultimate decision. You know, it's like taking away your choices, taking away your, you know, intelligence, taking away all these things from you and how you're kind of just like, this object too. Cause then we go into like, Oh, men can't help their thoughts. Men can't help their, you know, lust and their feelings and then you know all of a sudden like you're just constantly taking care of men um and you don't know why (laughs) and so I I feel like that was a huge part of this weird fucking thinking that I developed even like now I have to fight weird thoughts of it like as I'm deconstructing just all this stuff that we were told about relationships between men and women you know, there was a sort of diminishing that happened. I can remember we were told that women have a, a responsive love to men. So if your woman is acting up, it's because you're not, as a man, loving her enough, etc. So, So even from that perspective... We were to control you by loving you more, or we were to mm. we were responsible for the way that you were because we weren't doing something correct as well. So there was there was a flip side to that. But even saying that, it still was diminishing you. It was saying that we were responsible and what we did would make you, you know, respond and, and be, et cetera. And I always remember that one. It was just a freaky thing to say. And I remember my my ex-wife and I arguing one day because we were arguing about something and she goes, well, it's your fault because I have a resp- uh, responsive love. Oh, weird. I wasn't taught but that. But it kind of like, it kind of makes you... Right. But it also like doesn't leave room for like you to have your own feelings. Like it can't just yeah. be because she was pissed at you. Like, yeah. Well, that's right. Know? But that's what I'm saying. It, it, it actually, from a, from a diminishing of her, she can't have her own feelings. Mm-hmm. That neither of you are allowed to have your own feelings. That it's all this like jumble of like coincidental responding in a sense. Like where does the actual like personal embodiment of your own experience show up? where does ownership of your own self show up? You know, it's like a dismissal of like, even of self, like I myself do not exist. I am just like a robot that is responding. Like that's such a weird. It's just like brainwashing into making you think that you don't have your own feelings. It wasn't that the whole experience. Mm hmm. Yeah. In a sense, we were like brainwashed in the same way, like that we had to die to ourselves and that it, it was all like Jesus working through us and Jesus through us. Nothing could actually just be us. It was never just us. It was, oh, the devil is working through me or Jesus is working through me. Like we never had like this sense of like, um, no, this is me and my own actions. <laughs> yeah. I must become less so that he, he may become more. Yeah. That's that verse, which is just the most individual destroying verse in the Bible, I think. Yeah. I, I mean, who also makes the 
the rules of what Jesus wants or it's some bloke up the front generally. So we're told to submit to that and then there's a rule maker who tells us what that submission looks like and what our self needs to be. We're to be recreated in Christ. But, hey, it's this Christ. It's the one I'm going to tell you about over here so I can control the fuck out of you. So it's, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's just that vicious cycle. When you, when you reflect on, you know, that purity culture that you grew up with, what do you reckon it did to you in terms of relationships in, in being able to, to navigate, navigate relationships essentially and not always sexual relationships or romantic relationships, but what did it do? Like what are the effects when you reflect on that? It was really hard for me uh, to have just strictly like just platonic touch with people of the opposite sex um, and the same sex. That was hard for me. It was just platonic, platonic relationships created a tremendous amount of anxiety, especially with men, because it was like, and and even now, like it's almost flipped because now it's like, oh, they just want to fuck me. But like before it was like, oh, they just want to fuck me. <laughs> like I can't, I, I can't be too close to them. I can't get too friendly with them. I can't touch them. I can't be around them. They, they'll just want to, they'll just want to have sex yeah, and only with me. want one thing. Yeah. They only want yeah. one thing. It really ruined the way I saw men in my life and like my friends. Um, and it was tough because a lot of my friends were boys growing up. And then when we hit adolescence, it got increasingly hard because it, it turned into this, well, you can't really be alone with him and you can't be friends with him. And, and it was like, well, why not? Like, I don't see him sexually. He doesn't see me sexually. Like we're just, we're friends. Mm-hmm. Like, why is this a problem? Why can't I be alone with my friend? Um, or why can't I be a girl with a couple of guys? Like, what's the big deal with that? Why is that a problem? So th- that was tough. I had a lot of, I still struggle with a lot of anxiety around, around it. Yeah, just like platonic yeah. friendship. It's it's tough. It's tough to just have friendships with other singles because it's like, we're going to hook up? Are we not? <laughs> yeah. Relationships with men, I feel like, just got completely messed up because of purity culture. Um, because we were constantly watching our bodies as well. And then, like, because of that, we were afraid that they were also watching our bodies And reading, like, we would just, like, analyze the fuck out of things and analyze these relationships with men. And that's something I feel like I still struggle with, which is insane. Like, bathing suits. Bathing suits. Bathing suits. What you wear. Can't wear a bikini around a married man. Like, it's. I have so much shame. It's so hard for me. I have a friend, uh, some friends that are like a couple and I spend time with them and they have a hot tub and they're like, oh, come over, we'll like sit in the hot tub. And the first yeah. time we went over there, I like put my swimsuit on and I'm like, oh my God, her husband's going to see me her in dads. bikini. Dads. Oh, dads. Yeah. Being around dads. other people's dads. Like <sighs> immense shame uh, with my body. Immense shame. Yeah. It's, it's so strange how it's like so psychologically like embedded in our brains and we know better now. We still know better, but our brains will still like revert back to this whole, this is what you are. This is how you should be. I mean, you know, cause there was like the whole, uh, raise your arms, modesty check. So if you're wearing a shirt and you raise your arms and your stomach shows a little bit as your arms are raised, you can't wear that shirt. Shorts being too short. Shorts being too short. Or if you bend over, like if you're bending over and like your shirt, you know, naturally just kind of falls down. If your boobs show, you can't wear that shirt. Uh, just like weird hyper things that like I feel like I still think about subconsciously. Wearing a t-shirt, like a black t-shirt over your swimsuit. That was a whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. It still kind mm-hmm. of feels like it is too. <laughs> I still feel that. Yeah, and if you hang out with those groups still, they'll still shame you for that. I think for me it was like a lot of just a lot of shame around like hanging out with guys that um were not my significant other, having platonic touch, spending one-on-one time with men, even just like in a friendship sense, like it's a big no-no. I feel like I freeze up. Yeah, yeah. Like I don't know what to do. I'm like healing that right now though. Like I'm healing it. I'm working through it. I'm not married, so I can like do that kind of shit. But <laughs> I'm, I'm like working through that shit and like having like platonic friendships with men and like spending time one-on-one time with them. And it's like not sexual and it's not romantic and it's, it's really lovely. And, but there's still that undercurrent of, Oh gosh, I really hope he isn't thinking I'm trying to fuck him. Like, <laughs> or I hope like, 
I was going to say, Brian and I didn't get raised in the church. We were actually converted. I, I was 13, which is still a, a quite a young age. Brian was about 17. And so we've, we've reflected on this in the past, that a lot of those values and a lot of those rules, we weren't raised with. And so it, they tried to put that on us in church. And we kind of pushed back against it because it just didn't make sense. And even the role of women, like Brian and I have both said, you know, we, we both work with and for very strong women now in our jobs. And who cares, right? They just, they just happen to be women. They're great at their job. That's the way it is. But growing up in the church, there was this push for us to both buy into that model of, of diminishing women and, and seeing women, you know, with this sort of sexual fear and all that. And yet it wasn't natural for us at all. And so hearing you talk like this, it's like there must have been girls in our church that felt exactly the same way, but we didn't buy into it as much, except maybe a bit of responsive love. <laughs> I will say, though, that like the white man's experience in a church is very different than like the female you know, experience in the church too. Like there's a lot of men there like, oh, we didn't have that in that church. And I was like, well, it's because you're a man. <laughs> you know, it just, yeah, it, that's you, right. you didn't, you didn't see it because it, it wasn't being like put upon you. Cause you because were it wasn't man. us. Yeah. It wasn't mm-hmm. our experience. Yeah. Oh, totally. We, we were privileged. I mean, that, that's just the reality. White, white guys, we have white guy privilege and we mm-hmm. don't recognize a lot of that. So that's where it's great to unpack stories like yours that go, Okay, so these were parallel journeys in many ways, but we were both experiencing such incredibly different things. But it's also the damage that that does. I mean, some people are never able to process and unpack and able to deal with it. So it damages them for life. Like it's it's not a you know it's not something that um, is that easy to deal with. So we do really appreciate when people start to to bring that up, and certainly the response that we had to. The, that recent episode about growing up as a woman in Pentecostalism had such a great response because people have got, wow, that, that resonates. That was me. So it's always interesting to hear those stories. I think it's a really good example of just how like literally like boys and girls were just, you know, even in the same church and the same denomination had two very separate experiences was when they would separate us out for like the purity talks and they would do this at camp, they would do this at youth retreats, they would do this in Sunday school, whatever it was, there was always like a special night where they would separate the boys from the girls and the youth leaders, the female youth leaders would talk to the girls and the male youth leaders would talk to the boys. But most of the time, the boys would just go play basketball in the back and they wouldn't actually have a conversation. And if they did have a conversation, it was about the, the vile sins of watching porn and masturbating that and, and having premarital sex. So that was basically their conversation. Our conversation was all about what not to wear to lead your brothers astray how to behave properly so you don't lead your brothers astray. We, they didn't talk to us about masturbation or pornography or even premarital sex, really. It was really just about it's your responsibility not to make him sin. Because if you guys have sex, it's your fault. If if you get assaulted, it's your fault. Like It was like all of these different things that were really pushed on us. And I had the purity talk like 17,000 times in my childhood, like every year, at least one or two purity talks would show up in church or youth, like with our youth pastor, like whatever it was, it would show up. And um, it was the same thing every time, the same dialogue every time for the girls. And then I would ask my male friends, because I was friends with all the boys. I'd be like, what did you guys talk about? I'd be like, oh yeah, we just talked about how like porn is like not good and you know, it's fine. And then we played basketball. Was it ever the men talking to you, telling you this stuff, or would, would you break off with women leaders who would talk? Only to you? one time did I have a male youth pastor and I was livid. I was livid. I was like, how dare you? I actually stood up. I got in so much trouble. I was like, this is not appropriate that you're talking to us about this. You are a man, first of all. And second of all, how dare you? You are a grown man talking to us. Like we're all underage girls. And you're telling us that me wearing a V-neck is making you think about sex. Because that was it was it was the same thing every time the th- the clothes you wear and the way you behave is going to cause us to stumble. And so what me and the girls did after that, I, I was so pissed off. I was like, and I hated this youth leader. He was the worst. It was like at a little like church reunion camp. It was like a week long thing. And I was like, all of us we're wearing V necks tomorrow. All of us. 
so we all put on short shorts and v-necks and show up to class the next day and we're all like their boobies out (laughs) (laughs) honestly if v-necks are making you struggle that hard you probably have more there's more there than just you've got bigger problems sir (laughs) oh that is messed up Mm. but obviously you know that's just massive effects that that it has on you and it and you you sound like you're still unpacking it in some sort of way and that you know it does make you angry and so it should i mean it's it's something that should make you feel like there was an injustice there because there was so good on you for i know you tackle it in your podcast talking about podcast how did how did this happen how did you guys start the podcast molly you were saying you were invited in by rachel but what was the genesis of it, to use a biblical reference? Uh, the genesis um, was me realizing that I was deconstructing. Decon- the deconstructing community was something I stumbled upon online as I was deconstructing, which is not what I realized that I was doing. It started with podcasts, like science podcasts. And then I stumbled onto like the Thinking Atheist podcast, where he was like a uh, on the Christian radio for 30 years and then deconverted and things that started resonating with me because uh, my deconstruction story is I was deconstructing before I actually realized what was happening. It was just like a slow burn of like walking away, getting educated, things like that. As this was happening, I realized there was kind of some sort of movement for lack of a better word that was happening amongst people that were realizing the shit wasn't true. It wasn't real and it was harmful and hurtful. And I was kind of just started following these people, started hearing words that I I didn't have a name for, like deconstruction. I was like, oh, this is what's happening. So eventually I kind of felt with all the anger that I had from realizing this and all the intense emotions I was feeling that I needed to put them somewhere. It was also in order to reconnect maybe with community because I know that's a big one when people like leave the church or leave this whole bubble of people is they feel like they don't have community anymore. They they feel alone. And so the podcast was something that I felt like I wanted to start. And I started it with a friend who also had a background in um, Christianity and was heavily immersed in it. And she only lasted about 10 episodes in. And then I kind of was left on my own. And I didn't really want to be on my own because I wanted to have conversations with someone. And then um, I started inviting guests on and Molly was actually a guest on one of the episodes. Eventually I was like, I need another co-host. So I invited her on and now we've done like 40 episodes together now, I think. Maybe. No, not 40. Probably like 30 or something. I think it's like around 28. (laughs) We want to be particular. Like 28. (laughs) We're almost 30. We're almost there. (laughs) Almost 30. Um, So I I would say the genesis of the podcast is is that. Just me realizing what was happening, needing a place to put it. The podcast has been very therapeutic. Without us saying that we are not therapists. We're not trying to be therapists. We're just trying to... I think hearing other people's stories is healing. And I know it was for me when I started hearing like the nitty gritty of shit. Like I didn't want people to brush over it. And I didn't want people to just make humor out of it. I wanted to hear people's like raw shit that was happening and things I could resonate with. And I felt like that was really healing for me. And I felt like I had a lot of lot to say. So when I started it, I was like, I really hope that this does that for other people, if that makes sense. Did you guys know each other beforehand? We're cousins through marriage. (laughs) Uh. Funny story. Yeah. Rachel married my cousin, my first cousin. Mm -hmm. And uh, we met at a family reunion. And she was very kind of quiet and had this kind of... I'm an introvert. Yeah. Very introverted. Like almost like what, what extroverts would call an aloof personality. But I have social anxiety and am and like an outgoing introvert. So I like I could feel it. And I was like, I vibe with her. So I was like Rachel. And we always we just like hit it off. And and then I found her podcast. I don't know how I stumbled upon it. I don't remember. I just remember listening when you dropped the first episode. I listened to it with my best friend and we were trying to start a podcast about 
sex and sexuality and, and just trying to deconstruct our own process around that. And I didn't really know that that's what I was doing. I was just like, I need a space in which I can talk about sexual liberation because this is on my mind. I remember listening. We had just recorded an episode together. And then I was like, my cousin just dropped an episode about purity culture. Do you want to listen to it? And she was like, yeah. So we listened to it. I'm like, damn, this is like really good. It was a couple months later. Rachel asked me to come on and talk about sexuality and sex and, and healthy sex. And so I did the episode Healthy Ho. Then came back on again a couple months later and did another episode about Jesus camp, like church camp. And then didn't stop. And then I didn't stop. And she was like, let's didn't stop just, doing episodes. Do you want to, do you want to do this? And I was like, yeah, just for a little, I'll do a couple episodes with you. <laughs> like the yeah, agreement was like, like, I'm not committing. And I was I'm like, like just like 10 episodes. We'll see how this goes. And then I'm like, I'm not going to stop. This is, we're on a roll. This is getting good. You guys are charting, not just in the US, but you're charting globally as well, right? You're starting to really mm-hmm. make waves. And, and I think it's absolutely brilliant because, as I said, we've got two guys in Australia doing something. I love the fact that now we've got these two women in the US doing something similar and yet very, very different. So it's it's awesome. So so welcome, welcome to the party, ladies, even though you've been doing it for a while. Welcome to the party. Thank you. And that's also what I love about this is uh, you guys are not our first Australians that we are talking to on the podcast. We've had a few. (laughs) Yeah. And I I love it. I fucking love meeting people all over the world that are going through the same things. Like we really are all in this together and we're creating our own global like community. And I think it's, it's awesome. You guys have also met a few people that we've had on our podcast have also been on your podcast, which I think is so cool. Yeah, I saw you guys had our, our very dear Josie McSkimming. Yes, Josie. She's amazing. She's wonderful. Yeah, and Phil Drysdale, who I'm glad we snatched him because he is like done. He is hard to pin down too. He is hard. Yeah. But it was, I mean, it's so cool. I love it. It's awesome. It is really cool. And it's good to hear the different voices because everyone's got such a different experience and so it'll click with different people in different ways. So Phil's put it down indefinitely or is he just having a rest? I've sort of I've been a bit confused. Uh, it felt like indefinitely, but it's probably a rest. He was so passionate about what he was doing that I would be actually very surprised if it was forever. This kind of work sparks so much. It can create a lot of burnout. Um, if you're not careful, because it is such yeah. heavy stuff to He's unpack. heavy with the data and things like that. Yeah, too. and you're collecting, he was collecting all of this data and he was creating communities and connecting people and helping people get into therapy and helping people deconstruct. And like, that's a lot of space to hold for a lot of very deeply hurting people. And um, mm-hmm. if you're not making money from it, which he wasn't, like that that can create a lot of burnout too. And I mean, it's something that is not foreign to Rachel and I, I've experienced my fair share of it just in the the episodes we've done together. It's just like, wow, this is, this is heavy content and it's a lot of personal unpacking. Even if somebody else is being interviewed and you're interviewing someone else, you're still unpacking while you're listening to their story. So, or even just like we brought on a couple of professional psychiatrists and psychologists who who are talking about the actual like mental impact this kind of trauma can have on you. And you're like sitting there listening to these stats and being like, oh my God, it's me. (laughs) And you get off the episode and I I find myself like needing to go to bed. Like, I'm like, I need a nap. I need to go to bed right now. I'm exhausted. Mm-hmm. Ladies, speaking of episodes, I think we're going to have to draw ours to a close here because we normally go for about an hour. But if you're enjoying this, and hopefully you are, we're going to continue this conversation. We're going to go over to the Cheers to Leaving podcast now, which is going to be released on or around the same time. So you can just jump straight over and let's continue this conversation. But this time, Brian, we're going to let Molly and Rachel take the lead and take us wherever they want to take us in the conversation. Sounds good. And and before we do wrap up, where can people find you? Do you have, um, you know, communities on different socials where people can connect and get support? Tell us about those. So we have a Facebook group. It's called Cheers to Leaving Support Group on Facebook. You can add yourself, just answer the three little questions to be admitted into the group. Um, it's a great little community. For a while there, we were kind of having to create a lot of the content, but now 
the group is creating its own content. They're, they're having conversations, they're meeting each other where they're at, they're deconstructing together. It's really beautiful. And we, we have a lot of professionals on there as well. If you're struggling, if you have questions about deconstruct, like whatever, it's a great community to where you can find like just solidarity and, and it's, we highly recommend it. I love it. I, I don't really get on Facebook much right now, but when I do, I'm on that group and I'm just like, oh, my little munchkins, you're doing such a good job healing. My little flowers are growing. My babies. <laughs> um, we have Instagram at cheers to leaving. Everything's pretty much at cheers to leaving. Uh, we have Twitter. Cheers to leaving Instagram is what I navigate a lot. So if you want some great memes, get on there. If we're you want TikTok. some, you know, we're also on TikTok at cheers to leaving as well. Pretty much, and if you need to, if you want to email us, we we love having people email us their stories. Or if if you want to be a guest on the podcast, it's also cheers to leaving at gmail.com. So. Well, we'll make sure that we put all those links into our show notes so that people can find you easily. And of course, the Cheers to Living podcast, I'm guessing, is on all the great platforms. It is. Yes. Excellent. All of them. Even a few shit ones? What? Even a few shit platforms? Or is that just on good ones? Um, No, I think it's on shit ones as well. (laughs) That was attempted Australian humor. That was an Australian joke to say, yeah, it's on the good ones and it's on the shit ones too. Sorry about that. We lost you there for a minute, but welcome back. The Americans got confused. (laughs) So let's move across to your podcast and we'll see uh, hopefully everybody that's here now with us on, on our podcast. Come on over to Cheers to Leaving and let's keep going. See you there. Cool.